Today's episode is brought to you by trainedup.church. Trained Up is one of those services that I wish had existed when I was working in college campus ministry because one of the best and worst parts about campus ministry is that you're constantly raising up leaders and sending them out into the world when they graduate. It means you always have a need to recruit and train new leaders and volunteers all the time. And I know this isn't a problem exclusive to campus ministry. This is where Trained Up comes in. It's a flexible and powerful online video course platform that gives you the chance to capture training once and then deliver it to an unlimited number of volunteers at their convenience. Trained Up has an extensive library of pre-filmed training videos and courses you can share with your team. But even more importantly, they give you the ability to film and upload your own training videos and courses to ensure that the language, concepts, and details are right for your ministry. You can even add a quiz at the end to make sure people are paying attention while they watch. It can be as simple as using your own computer's webcam or the camera on your phone. But if video isn't your thing, you can also hire the production team at Trained Up to create professional quality videos using your content. Check out Trained Up today by heading over to trainedup.church. Hey, this is Dan Wonderlick, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. Well, we've reached the end of another year, and I don't know about you, but 2017 has been kind of crazy. But certainly one of the high points for me has been the opportunity to be in community with you as we learn and grow and talk about being preachers and teachers and communicators. And so as we did at the end of last year, I wanted to put together a year in review episode where we look back at some of the moments that we shared together this year. And of course, putting together an episode like this is really, really hard because I love all of the episodes and I am so grateful to every single guest that took the time to share their wisdom and experience and tips with us. And so whether you've been with us the whole year and this is all familiar, or you jumped in at some point during the year, or this is your very first episode of Art of the Sermon, I would encourage you to check out our archives, not only for 2017, but earlier as well, because there's so many great interviews, a lot of great content, and so much of it is evergreen. It's stuff that's still going to be as effective today and meaningful today as it was uh, when we did those interviews and put out those episodes. But this year, back in October, we celebrated the two-year anniversary of Art of the Sermon, and it also coincided with our 50th episode. And so for a big special episode like that, we needed a big special guest. And so here's a clip from my interview with pastor and church leadership author, blogger, and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff. Oh, I think it's really hard to be a leader if you're not a great communicator. And the sharper your communication skills probably the stronger and the broader your leadership is going to be. I would expand that even beyond leadership and and talk about life skills. I'm working with a number of 20-year-olds who are sort of launching into life, right? Finish university and in their first career jobs. And one of the incredibly unfair advantages you have if you're a good communicator is you're just going to get further faster, period, plain and simple. I remember a piece of feedback that Andy Stanley gave me years ago now when I was first getting to know him. And I'd given a talk at North Point, and I asked him for some feedback. And it was some of the most meaningful feedback I got. He didn't say anything critical. So I'm like, okay, well, Andy Stanley didn't say anything critical. So that was good. (laughs) But what he did say to me, it was really interesting. He said, you had me in the first 60 seconds. And I said, well, how? Like, why? He said, I could tell you were a leader. And he said, I wanted to follow to see where you were going. And then he went on to say, there's a difference between a communicator who's speaking and a leader who's speaking. He says, because Mm. a communicator may be eloquent, they may have a polished text. I'm paraphrasing him here, but but you're not necessarily interested in where they're going because you're not sure about where they're going. A leader can get up 
and can talk, and you just know, wow, this is going somewhere. I, I want to be along for the journey. And the leader may not be quite as polished as the communicator is, maybe not as eloquent, but you're more gripped and you want to follow because that leader is heading somewhere. And mm. so I, I just think that they're, the best communication has that leadership component to it. Because you're going somewhere. And I mean, you know, most, most of your listeners have probably heard this before, Dan, but, you know, there's that thing about how much would major corporations pay for 40 minutes of someone's undivided attention? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you have on Sunday morning. And for you not to cast vision about your church, and I mean, that doesn't mean every sermon has to be a vision sermon, but there should be some component of vision in there. You're calling people, like, you know, in, in marketing, everybody talks about the call to action. And there are so many sermons that have no call to action. A leader calls people to act, not just to think, not just to know, but to do. And so what do you want your people to do? And if you can answer that question, I think you're leading. Preaching certainly is an act of leadership, but it's also a tool for evangelism. And back in June, we spoke with Adam Hamilton from the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, and he shared with us ways we can prepare our sermons so that they connect with the non-religious people in our communities. You know, a lot of times in seminary we're taught, uh, and many of us were taught the lectionary to preach the lectionary, and uh, and that's fine. I think the lectionary can work great, especially for certain seasons. But I really encourage people to move away from preaching lectionary all the time. Figure out the kind of sermon series that you need to preach to address some of those things we talked about in those five different buckets. But the other thing is that preaching can start with the text, and you exegete the text, and then you apply it to daily life and you illustrate it. That's one fine way to preach. The challenge today is that for a lot of people, they're not really, especially if you're reaching non-religious people, they're not really sure why they want to come and hear you talk for 20 or 30 minutes about a book that was written a long time ago that has stuff in it that they're aware of that, they, that they not, they're not that fond of, you know, whether it's uh, you know, the violence uh, attributed to God in the Scripture or texts about you know, gender and relationships. or There are things that people know about in the text who never read the Bible. They're non-religious people, and they don't know that that's a minor chord. But, um, but there are people wondering, why do I want to hear about that? Your committed Christians might be very excited about that, but the non-religious, not so much. Right. And if you look at how Jesus preached, he actually started in a different place. So instead of starting with the biblical text, most often Jesus started with the human condition, and he exegeted that, and then he applied the word to that. And of course, whatever he was saying became the word, right. but, uh, and then he illustrated that. And so, so I think... And so the one form of preaching, when we start with the Bible, starts with the answer, and then it searches for the question to which that is an answer, versus starting with the question and then moving to the answer and finding the answer in the biblical text. And so both of those are good biblical preaching. When I, when I do a series of sermons on Moses, I'm starting with the text, and then I'm looking to see what, what is the question this text is answering? What is it teaching me about life? But, but when I start with, like, the series on the birds and the bees, I'm starting with, this is where we live, and these are the relationships we struggle with, and this is what real life is like, and, uh, and now, how does the biblical text speak to that? And I find that that's often a more compelling way to preach um, that engages, you know, non-religious people as well as your committed folks. So every other sermon series, I start with the text. Every other sermon series, I start with, start with the question or the human condition. And the other thing I, I try to remind people of is, you know, I have three kind of aims in my preaching that tie back into the purpose of the church. And uh, so every sermon, I'm going to try to teach people something they didn't know before. And in order to do that, I've got to learn 
two or three things if I'm going to teach them just one thing because different right. people are going to learn different things. I use, an, I use an iPad with maps and charts and all kinds of stuff you know, on the video screen so I can be teaching them things. And there, there, there are a variety of things you can teach them. Sometimes it's just facts, you know, sometimes it's statistics or whatever. But teaching people things they didn't know before, the second is to inspire them, that is to touch their heart, and the last thing is to call them to action. Hmm. And those three are the head, the heart, and the hands. And that's three of the four H's in the old 4-H club. And so I find that's, that's one way that people find themselves engaged. And if you can speak to the head, the heart, and the hands, or even just two of those three on any given weekend, people will walk away saying, I got something out of church. Uh, I, I want to tell my friends what I got out of it, and I want to come back again next week. I always love it when we have guests that do things a little differently and challenge the conventional wisdom we hold about preaching, and this next guest certainly does that. George Acevedo is the pastor of Grace Church down in Cape Coral, Florida, and they employ a team teaching approach not only to the teaching, but to the sermon preparation and writing process as well. If you'd like to learn all the details about their process, be sure to go back and listen to the episode from January. But in this clip, George explains the benefits of this team approach. The the process is... Uh, it's, it's fairly simple. I mean, what we had to challenge it is um, kind of a, a, an unspoken mantra of preachers in churches. And it's what I would call the myth of the super preacher, mm. that we're going to build uh, our ministry on the heroics of a dynamic communicator who's going to draw them in. And there was a day in in Christendom when heroic solo leader, dynamic super preacher uh, could draw them in. It was kind of a build it and they will come kind of perspective. Yeah. And please hear me. I believe in the importance of carefully crafted. I'm not trying to minimize uh, preaching. Um, I have friends who are judicatories in our denomination as well as in other denominations. And they tell me that whenever a church is needing a pastor, you know, either one or two at the list is we want a good preacher. Right. Um, so people still count on good preaching. But the, the, what, what we began to question is not the importance of good preaching, of excellent preaching, that is biblical and practical and simple, not simplistic, but simple, mm-hmm. is that, uh, that, that there's a fundamental premise that I don't think had been challenged. And that's that sermon preparation had to be done by... Uh, one preacher who kind of like Moses, you know, goes up to the mountains, hears <laughs> yeah. from God, gets the tablets, comes down and delivers it to the, you know, to the awaiting masses. And uh, so you'd hear things like, I, I remember in seminary hearing things like, if there's no sweat in the study, there'll be no fire in the pulpit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I, I'm not minimizing preparation. What I'm challenging is that it has to be done alone. So our fundamental premise is that even the ministry of preaching and teaching can be done in teams. And what we see is that there's significantly uh, some greater advantages to that. There's significantly more input. Um, there's a diversity of life experiences and perspectives. Preaching done on a team increases accountability, and it minimizes what we call the possibilities for what we preachers lovingly call Saturday night specials, <laughs> right. you know, where you stay up all night working on it. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, from a very pragmatic, it frees huge amounts of time that can be given to other leadership tasks or even rest. Sometimes the problem is preachers are working too much. Yeah. The other advantage we see is that there's an exponential improvement in the preaching uh, of the younger preachers or the less experienced preachers. And then a very pragmatic uh, advantage is that there's a sharing of, 
uh, in this case, in our environment, media and graphics, other resources, message notes, uh, videos, bumper videos. Sometimes we do giveaways, you know, where we might be giving away a prayer card or a, or a, there might be a prop that's being used. Um, and, and so there's this kind of um, economy of scale that happens uh, in the midst of all of that. So we see those as being huge advantages uh, to team, uh, not just team teaching. A lot of churches do team teaching, but the preacher still goes away to their corner, to their mountain, to go hear a word from God and coming down. We don't do that. It might be hard enough for some of us to share the sermon prep process, even when we ultimately get to deliver the final message. But what happens when we realize something important needs to be said, but we might not be the best people to say it? Sophia Agtarap is the Director of Communications at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and she joined us in September to share her thoughts about amplifying other voices. I think, especially when working with uh, communities that are already marginalized and issues that are already sort of very heightened in terms of emotional, political energy, it's really important to remember um, the privilege and power that we hold in those situations and how that impacts any of the work that we do with a particular community or a particular cause. And so, you know, when, for example, we were planning this sit-in at the governor's office and we tried to come up with a list of, you know, who would speak and share stories and who would even lead um, lead that particular sit-in, we wanted to make sure that the people whose voices were heard were the people who were most directly impacted. Clergy can say a lot of things, you know, lay leaders can say a lot of things because they've studied theology and they, you know, work with folks who are in these situations that are um, most impacted, but it was really important to make sure that um, we heard from people who were directly impacted by um, the lack of access to um, to affordable health care. And so the people who spoke, one was an Army um, veteran <clears throat> who was diagnosed with cancer, and so she's currently a cancer patient. The other person is the mother of a woman who did not get the care that she needed in time and eventually passed away. So I think it's really important that we are lifting up and giving people who are most directly impacted the spaces to share their story. And I think that's where I think that's where a lot of the power is and the ways that we can change hearts and minds is by hearing stories. Because I think that gives validity to your movement too, right? If all you have is talking heads and people who are scholars and have studied this particular issue or who know how to preach about it is one thing. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But when we don't give space to the people who who have life experiences that that can impact um, how a particular position or legislation is viewed. I think we're really doing um, doing any sort of movement a disservice. And I think mm-hmm. of, I think the same way when it comes to the work that we're doing around immigration. If you don't have anyone who is an immigrant who has been impacted by um, the threat of DACA being um, being shut down, um, if you don't have anyone who you know, has had an undocumented person in their life. I think those are all really important questions to ask as we, um, as we engage in these, uh, in these conversations and actions and movements. And so, you know, it's one thing I think to preach about something in church and maybe another thing to invite someone to speak on their experience. And again, there's also a fine line of sort of having that same person be the token, you know, whatever all the time. But I think it's really important that we ask these questions is, you know, back to the back to that sort of guiding principle that I shared earlier. Am I the right person to say or do this, um, or can someone else do it better? 
Of course, in order to have other voices to amplify, we need to have a community and space within that community for a diversity of voices. Olu Brown is the pastor of Impact Church in downtown Atlanta, and he joined us in June to share how they create an open, welcoming, diverse, and inclusive community. When we initially started with a core team of about 25 people, we were thinking, okay, we're going to be high in technology. We're going to have flat screens everywhere, yeah. and it's just going to be this awesome, really cool, eclectic place. But 10 years later, we've become wiser and realized that God had a really different plan. Yes, we got cool technology and we have flat screens everywhere, but doing church differently embraces um, people and being able to meet people where they are. And so our hope and vision is always to be a multicultural congregation, although a higher percentage of our congregation culturally is uh, from an African-American tradition. We do have individuals from other ethnic and other cultural traditions, and we celebrate that, in particular because we're an online community as well, so there are people who connect with us from around the world. Uh, Secondly, um, we embrace inclusion. And so when we say inclusion, we mean we welcome those who are in poverty. We welcome those who are in great wealth. We welcome those who are uh, academically um, inclined and have so many wonderful degrees on their walls and accomplishments. And those who are equally as brilliant and as smart, but may not have had the opportunities some others have had. Mm. And so don't have the academic accomplishments. And so we also embrace members um, regardless of their um, sexual identity and are an inclusive congregation related to sexual orientation. We embrace older adults. We embrace middle-aged adults, young adults, youth, and children. And so these are some of the things that we do differently. Um, From a programmatic side, we think through and think about worship a lot. You know, I was just having a conversation with one of our pastors, and we were looking at the space that they have primary responsibility for and raising questions to each other of how can we evolve this space creatively. And that's beyond what the sermon is going to be. That's beyond what the scripture is going to be. It is when a young person or an adult walks into this space, what do we want them to think about? What do we want them to feel? And so all of those are perspectives of doing church differently. In order for our churches to truly be open to everybody, sometimes we have to think intentionally about specific groups of people. In August, Alicia Gordon from United Methodist Women joined us to talk about the relationship between the church and single mothers. Generally speaking, we always talk about, you know, God is the God of the fatherless, and we go through the New Testament and um, Timothy and Titus and all these conversations about how we are charged as a church to care for the widow and the fatherless. But when it's time to talk about single mothers in the context of 21st century world, we don't want to have that conversation because, because again, the implication is that the woman made a poor decision mm. and that um, because she made this poor decision, she is not deserving of the same regard or support as the widow and the fatherless. But come on, if we talk about in Scripture that we are called to care for the fatherless, what is a fatherless child? <laughs> the fatherless child is the child of a single mom. And I think we lent words around that and we split hairs around that because we really have difficulty wrestling with our own understanding about single motherhood and the implications, the social implications of that. But that's what Scripture calls us to do. And Scripture is calling us, in my opinion, to 
begin to rethink the way that we interpret scripture that calls for us to care for the fatherless. Because the care for the fatherless child is also to care for that child's mother mm. and, and supporting her in really important ways. And I always go back to um, the, the text of Second Kings 4, where you have this widow woman, right, whose son is going to be sold into slavery to pay off his father, his deceased father's debt. And what does she do? She calls on, you know, the, the prophet comes to her and says, go get a jar and fill it up with oil and go to all of your friends in the community, all the people in the community and go get the jars, right? And the prophet speaks over the jars and the jars are filled up with oil and so much so that she not only has enough to pay the debt, but she has enough that we assume to, to live on for the rest of her days during a time of famine. And so I always go back to that scripture when talking to churches and talking to people of faith about how we understand the church's role and the community's role in the lives of single motherhood about self-sufficiency and being a resource uh, of saying that God has a deep heart for women who are caring for children on their own. You see it in the story of Hagar. You see it in the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see it in the story of the woman in Second Kings 4. And, you know, I come from the belief that if God says it, says it more than once, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. God really means it, right? Yeah. As I said at the top of the show, this year's been kind of crazy. But if we're being honest, isn't every year a little crazy? And certainly, we've all had Sundays where we step into the pulpit on fire for God, and other times we step up to preach, and we don't know how we're going to deliver a message of hope because we're struggling with hope ourselves. Back in October, Dalton Rushing, pastor of Decatur First United Methodist Church in Decatur, Georgia, joined us to talk about preaching when you're not feeling it. Fred Craddock says that... Um he said his prayer every morning for like 50 years was that uh, he was grateful for work that was more important than how he might happen to feel about it on a given day. Mm. And uh, I, I have returned to that prayer regularly because there, there have been plenty of times in my life when I haven't been feeling it. Um, and it's not that I feel like I've stood and said things I didn't believe, but I think I have understandings of belief that are uh, an understanding of the, the the idea of belief that is that is broader than just um, in words. Maybe this is a helpful uh, helpful story. When I was uh, at Candler, the preaching professor had a panel come in to talk about preaching during tragedy, and um, one of the pastors told the story of arriving at a church and very soon after having a significant number of the members of the most influential family in the church die in a plane crash mm. very soon after his arrival. And he talked about the, the funeral and he talked about preaching, uh, preaching it and that he stumbled through and it was fine. And he said he met with the family that was remaining uh, in the months after the service. And he said, so how was that experience for you? I know that must have been difficult. And they said it was very difficult and we appreciate your sermon. But the thing that was the most powerful for us was when the congregation stood to say the Apostles' Creed. Mm. Because in that moment, we weren't able to believe, but it was as if our church community believed for us. And that's a really foundational story for me. I, I return to that to hearing that story a lot, because um, there are days in which, you know, my kids hadn't slept the night before, uh, or I'm not feeling great, or something's weighing on my mind, in which... I've got to stand up and realize that not everybody's kids didn't sleep the night before, <laughs> and not everybody has the same thing weighing on their mind. Yeah. 
And so to bring all of my stuff into the pulpit isn't terribly helpful. So I think having a broad understanding of what it means to have faith, uh, being grounded in Scripture and acknowledging that even within the canon there are different, uh, there are times in which the, the writers of Scripture feel differently about God. Sometimes they're really into religion and sometimes they're angry. And the fact that those feelings are written into the canon helped me on days I'm just not feeling it. It was my honor and privilege this last February to introduce you to my friend and colleague, the Reverend Narcy Jeter. She's a United Methodist pastor in South Carolina, but she used to be my boss in college campus ministry back in Florida. And when we worked together, she had to have surgery for a brain tumor, and the side effects of the surgery took away her ability to speak for a time. Her story is so incredible and so powerful, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the entire episode. But in this clip, I ask her to give words of encouragement to those of us who are struggling. How did she keep her hope? How did she keep her perseverance? How did she put her faith in God and keep moving forward? Again, this is such an amazing episode, and here's a clip from my friend Narcy. On those dark nights of the soul, when I am devastated by what a prisoner said, when I'm devastated about not being able to communicate, when people bring up the health issues, um, I have to remember that God has called me, that the great God of the universe calls me, and I don't have to please anyone else but God. Mm. And all the haters out there drinking their hater aids <laughs> can go away. Yeah. yeah. Because God has placed me here mm. for such a time as this. And do what you can to get filled. I mean, Abide in Christ. Take walks in the beach. If you don't have a beach nearby, take walks in the woods. Get yourself replenished because the church is not going to replenish you. Hear me now. You can be doing all the things for the glory of God and you can burn out. I mean, hardcore burnout. And so God does not want that for you. God wants you to have a full, abundant, and healthy life. Why do pastors think that doesn't apply to them? And we tell it to our people every Sunday or every Wednesday or every Tuesday. You're included in that calling. Amen. We take better care of our parishioners than we take care of ourselves. And that is a sin and a shame. And I am very guilty of it. <laughs> I am preaching to the choir. <laughs> right, right. I mean, but I need to hear this. You don't do any good for people when you're so burnt out that you barely can put one foot in the front of the other. And you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. You're no use. Well, you're sort of in use. You're sort of can limp along um, and fake it. But you can't fake it long enough unless you go to the source, Jesus. I never, before the surgery, before the second surgery, had an inkling of what depending on God was in actuality, because 
I mean, I skated through life, but I now know what dependence on God is because he provides my word. Mixed in among all the pastors and preachers I have as guests on the show, I like to invite on people who work outside the world of the church because we can learn so much from them as well. And I think there's so many parallels between the creative process of musicians and artists and the work we do as preachers. Certainly sermons have academic and theological components, but they're also an act of creativity. I mean, this podcast is called Art of the Sermon. Well, just one episode ago, earlier in December, we spoke with musician Ryan O'Neill, better known as Sleeping at Last, and he shared with us the three guiding principles for his work. The first thing that is most important to me is that I will never write anything that isn't from my heart. Like I really, I, I think basically when I was a 14-year-old just starting writing songs, that became very, very important to me. And I sort of set out a rule that uh, it, music is not worth making for me unless it, it truly is personal and vulnerable and sincere. And so that has been my, my criteria for writing ever since. And I, I, want, I feel like to make at least my my ideal version of art is to be as honest as possible. And so the only way to do that is to uh, to never force anything into my songs and also never force anything out of my songs. So that's been my uh, that's been my initial rule uh, from from when I began writing until now. And uh, um, I've, I've stuck with it. And then uh, a songwriter friend of mine, probably I guess it would have been right around that time as well, 15 years old. He was uh, maybe a few years older than me and was kind enough to kind of take me under his wing. And um, one thing he said about lyric writing that always stuck with me is try to say as much as you possibly can with as few words as you can. Mm. And so that has always been a, a, a lyrical challenge for me because, um, you know, you have a you have a limited <laughs> amount of space in, yeah. in a song, in, the, in a traditional song structure. And so to try to say as much as I can with as few words, I think... It it makes it forces me to choose better words <laughs> or yeah, to constantly yeah, yeah. search for better words. So that's been another uh, another rule that I followed. And then um, another another person that was kind enough to mentor me early on in my career was Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. He he said something that always stuck with me as well, which is to write it down and remember that you don't have to show anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like that is also um, it. It helps avoid some writer's block because it basically, if you give yourself permission to write something terrible for a minute, <laughs> you uh, you uh, you you might find that that terrible initial idea led to a better idea, and so um, that's always been uh, uh, in the background of my. Uh, uh, writing process as well, but um, but it, as a whole, uh, back to your your uh, question that I probably didn't really answer directly. I, I want I want hope to come through in my music. That is um, whether whether or not I even intend for it to happen. I've noticed that over the years of making music, there there seems to be a theme of hope in everything that I do. Even if I like set out to try to write a a song inspired by the emotion sorrow, like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the saddest song I've ever written. Um, at the very end, I, without me. Uh, for Forcing it in there, um, it there, hope kind of takes root, and um, so uh, my uh, no pun intended. My my hope for these songs is that um, people will feel understood and and find a bit of hope in, in the in the in the music I'm trying to write. And um, but yeah, so. As we wrap up the 2017 year in review, I want to play you a clip from my favorite interview that I've ever done for the podcast. Of course, I love every episode, and I'm so grateful to every guest that's taken the time to be on the program, but this is a conversation that continually encourages me and challenges me. 
This last March, we had the chance to talk to Brad Montague, the creative heart and mind behind the Kid President video series. Maybe you remember the pep talk from a few years ago. So I want to close 2017 by first saying thank you again so much for being a part of this journey and this community together. And now I want to leave you with Brad's thoughts on the enduring power of hope. It's all about creatively communicating hope. Like it's, it's, uh, hope is something that, that is, is so desperately needed. And I've not, I just took for granted that, that you could share a message or share something that's encouraging without realizing the power that that has when it lands across somebody's laptop, when it lands across their ears or however it finds their way to them. Um, I'm only just now beginning to realize the power that that encouragement has. And I, I've, have been wired to, to do that, to, um, encourage because I've needed encouragement. Mm, so like, yeah. I have un- understand that, but only when we started posting these videos is my little brother-in-law is a pretending to be a little president yeah, and, and beginning to see the response. And the response was not just, Oh, that's cute. Which sometimes it was, but other times it was, this is exactly what I needed. I'm quitting my job. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. or this is, this is everything I, I uh, wanted. I'm calling my mom right now. We haven't spoken in five years. I'm like, Whoa, I, I, I had no part in that. There's something much bigger going on. So, so as we started to see that, and I, I've been feeling that, you know, I think I'm wired to encourage. I think that's what I'm supposed to do. That's how I was made. But I didn't, think that it actually meant something. I thought it was, um, a weak superpower. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like I, I think a lot about Captain Planet. And if you remember that cartoon oh, show, Oh yeah, that was my brother's favorite show growing up. Yeah. So they, they all had these amazing powers. It's like earth, wind, fire, water. And then it was all these really cool things. And there was this little guy with a monkey and he'd go heart. (laughs) (laughs) And we always would laugh. We're like heart. Ha ha ha. Like he got the worst superpower, but I'm, I'm learning that heart is a legit superpower. Yeah. Uh, It is, it is, um, something we're all so hungry for. And so like, I made this video that that was super hard on the sleeve. It was a pep talk and um, it connected in a way that I could have never dreamed. And I had made other things. I had made other things I was proud of, but I had never put that much heart into something. Mm-hmm. And um, it it helped it helped send me on a path of realizing that maybe there's a lot of people out there hungry for a little bit of light, a little bit of love, uh, a whole lot of hope. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. 
As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.